morning. We are continuing on in our sermon series here in Matthew's Gospel, and just to give you a bit of a heads up of where we're going to be going uh, in, the weeks to, in the weeks to come, we'll be continuing uh, Matthew's Gospel all the way through the summer up to Labor Day, and uh, in July, or most of July, as has become our custom here, we'll hear uh, from a number of our other pastors, Pastor John, Josh, Johnny, Joey, Eric, will all be uh, taking the turns at the pulpit. So I'm excited to be here through July listening uh, to God's Word preached from our other staff. And uh, appreciate your prayers for me. I'll be working um, especially uh, through July on uh, prepping for the fall sermon series. Uh, Lord willing, so appreciate your prayers uh, for that. Well, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord and ask for His blessing on our time in God's Word this morning. Father, thank you. Uh, for this day. Thank you for the beauty of the sunshine and uh, the world that you have made. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your people. Thank you most of all for your son who holds all things together by the word of his power. And uh, God, we want to know him better. We want to understand better who he is and who he is for us. So as we look at your word today, Lord, I just pray that you would Guide our hearts, our thoughts, our minds, guide my words, and use them uh, to illuminate your Son to us in fresh new ways, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think it's fair to say that all of us want to know what our lives are about or what life is about more generally. We want to know where we're headed, where we're going, what we're doing, what we're living for. I think this is a true uh, thing of all human beings. Um, whether uh, we are Christians, whether we are non-Christians, whether we are Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, atheist, whatever it might be, we all want to have a sense of what life is about, the purpose of life, and where we're going. Everyone needs a sense of direction. I've been reading through uh, some of Shakespeare's plays this, uh, this year, trying to expand my, my reading palette trying to be a little more sophisticated. There are, some, there are some books that you read because you want to read them. There are other books you read so you can say that you've read them. And I confess that perhaps that might have been my motivation in starting Shakespeare. But as I've been reading Shakespeare, he's been growing on me some. And I was reading through Macbeth was the last play that I wrote. And if you've read Macbeth, it's a very dark, uh, it's a very dark play. And towards the end of it, there's a famous soliloquy about life. And uh, it's at the end of uh, Act 5, Scene 5, uh, for those who care about such things. And Macbeth's sins are finally catching up with him. And all the shenanigans that he's been pulling are coming to uh, a head. And everything is collapsing down around him. His wife, the queen, has just died. And so as he contemplates the end of all of it, he says uh, these lines... Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have merely lighted fools on their way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, 
signifying nothing. Let's pray. (laughs) Oh, if that was life, I mean, how hopeless. How hopeless, right? That's not a livable framework for life. Macbeth has pulled all sorts, of, all sorts of dark deeds. They're collapsing down around him and he sees what he sees to be the meaninglessness of life. But that's not a livable frame for us to operate in. Animals, of course, can live from moment to moment just worrying about uh, the bodily needs. But human beings, we live with a certain eye to the future. We need a sense of purpose, a sense of orientation, what we're supposed to be about. But what is our purpose? And how do we know it? How do we understand what should be orienting our lives or moving our lives in certain directions? Who gives it to us? Does it come from the outside? Perhaps from family, from culture, from society? Does it come from the inside? The voices of our hearts, the the things that we care about on the inside. How do we know where to find our purpose? In our text today, I think we're going to see in this account of Jesus' transfiguration and most pointedly in God's statement about Jesus, we're going to find Christianity's version of the true North Star, our answer to where we look for our guiding purpose. Not so much what our purpose is, but where we look to find our purpose revealed to us. So in our sermon today, it can be broken down like this. Introduction, we've already done that, so that part's done. Then we're going we're gonna to look at some context, explain the text, and apply the text, all right? So looking at some of the context of our passage, Matthew's gospel, particularly getting into chapter 16, 17, and then on through, lots of ups and downs, lots of twists and turns for the disciples. Last week, we looked at Peter's great confession, one of the high marks, not only for Peter, but statements about Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God, who would establish a kingdom, a church, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So Peter's confession is an up moment in Matthew's gospel. But immediately after this up moment, Jesus says to the disciples, but I'm going to be crucified, and you need to take up your cross and be willing to die with me. And then immediately following that, we have the transfiguration here in 17, another up moment of Jesus' glory being revealed. But as they're coming off the mountain, it's another down moment because Jesus, we didn't read it, but you can read it in 9 uh, through 13, Jesus says to the disciples that have just experienced his glory, but I'm going to be crucified. They get to the bottom of the mountain and they encounter a demon-possessed individual. Jesus drives out the demon in extraordinary power, another up moment. But immediately following this up moment, he tells his disciples, but the Son of Man is going to be crucified and killed. So up, down, up, down, up, down. This is what's going on in Matthew's gospel. And the disciples are confused. They're distressed. Luke tells us that at this moment in the narrative of Jesus' life and ministry and the disciples' life and ministry, that the disciples are distressed by the things that Jesus keeps saying about his coming crucifixion. But then Luke adds this interesting commentary that the truth of Jesus' mission has been hidden from them. They don't understand it fully. 
So not only are the disciples, not only are the crowds not up to speed on all that's going on, but the disciples themselves aren't fully grasping it. Jesus is talking cryptically much of the time, and and so they themselves don't fully understand it. Back and forth, back and forth, up and down. But we have this verse at the end of 16, chapter 16. I didn't reference it last week. I kind of read it, but just let it hang out there. It actually, I think, connects us into 17. The last verse of chapter 16, Matthew 20, 16, uh, 28, Jesus says this, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Truly there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the man come, Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now taken at first blush, we might think that this is a reference to the coming of the Son of Man in the end times when Jesus returns to establish fully and finally his kingdom upon the earth. But what's notable in this is that in all three gospel accounts that mention and recount the, uh, Jesus' transfiguration, this verse, or some version of it, is immediately preceding the accounts of the transfiguration. This is significant because it gives us a clue into how we're to read the transfiguration. The gospel writers, you may or may not know this, but the gospel writers don't simply just record historical events as they happen. They do that kind of in a broad general sense. But they also arrange the events of Christ's ministry thematically to convey certain points that they want to make. They take some events that happened perhaps later in his ministry and bring it to the front, all clumped together around certain themes. And so while there is a kind of a general historical narrative of coherence with Jesus' birth and then his teaching ministry and then on to his death and finally his resurrection, the various events that happen along the way are pulled together thematically by the gospel writers. So the fact that all three gospel writers bring this statement of Jesus and connect it to his transfiguration is significant and something for us to pay attention to. Something about the Son of Man coming in his kingdom is happening in the transfiguration. All right, so now we get into the passage itself. Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of Jesus, are brought up onto what Matthew tells us is a high mountain. This is actually the second time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus has been on what Matthew describes as a high mountain. Now, I asked in the first service if anyone knew what the other time was, and no one knew in the first service. So we're going to see if you all are better. Does anyone know the other time in Jesus' gospel when he was up on a high mountain? Oh, you guys are, see, you're beautiful. I told you, you're my favorite service. So apparently, yes, the temptation is the other time that Jesus is up on a high mountain. Jesus goes up on a high mountain, and Satan offers him the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus turns them down. But here Jesus is up on the high mountain again, and God reveals Jesus in the glory of Jesus' rightful kingdom. There's a whole sermon that could be preached there, but we're going to just give that note, and we're going to keep moving on. But Jesus is transfigured. This is an extraordinary event, and however you imagine it in your mind, but Jesus is transfigured. His face shines like the brilliance of the sun. His clothing shines. And we seem to have this imagery, or at least this is how I imagine it, that Jesus' whole 
inner body is shining out the glory of God, and it shines forth on his face where it's not covered by clothing, but even his clothing can't contain the light that is shining forth, and so his clothing takes on this white light. Reminds me a bit uh, like Gandalf uh, in The Two Towers. If you're a Tolkien fan, you might remember when Gandalf has fought the Balrog, and he comes back from the dead, and he reveals himself for the first time to his friends. His face and his clothing glow. Tolkien was a uh, devout Christian, and he wove, uh, worked into his, uh, into his uh, uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy many kind of references or hidden allusions, as it were, to Jesus. And, and Gandalf is one of these references. And so this moment in Gandalf's life where he is transfigured, as it were, is an allusion uh, to Jesus' transfiguration. But I don't know that Matthew had Gandalf in mind when he wrote the gospel, The other thing that comes to mind, perhaps a little bit more close to home, is Jesus in John's vision in Revelation chapter 1. You might remember John the Apostle has this vision of Jesus, and Jesus, like the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, fall down terrified, or John, rather, falls down terrified in this vision of Jesus. But here's John's description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Here John has a vision of Jesus in the end, as it were, in all of his glory, And that vision that John has of Jesus is breaking into the moment of Jesus' encounter on the mountain with the Lord, his Father, and the disciples. So we have this extraordinary moment of Jesus' hidden identity coming into uh, uh, this moment of transfiguration, the very opposite of what has just happened with the lights here, (laughs) here in the sanctuary. I don't know. I don't know what that's about. So in any case, in any case, Jesus is transfigured. But not only is Jesus transfigured, uh, not only is Jesus transfigured and he's extraordinarily bright, revealing, as it were, the glory of his coming kingdom, but Moses and Elijah appear on the mountain with Jesus. And this invites some reflection. Why Moses and Elijah? Why have Moses and Elijah appeared on the mountain talking with Jesus? It's not just because Moses and Elijah are big deals from the Old Testament narrative. If you go back and you read through the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, we encounter Moses and we encounter Elijah, and they're two very prominent figures. But more so than that, Moses and Elijah, uniquely to the Jewish people, represent the law and the prophets. If there was one person who symbolized in himself, his body, the law of God, it's Moses. 
To speak of Moses is to speak of the law that Moses brought. And the law was the organizing code of conduct that made the Jewish people the Jewish people. And so here Moses, the great lawgiver of the Jewish people, has come to visit with Christ. But not just Moses bringing, as it were, the law, but Elijah, who is the most powerful of all of the prophets in the Old Testament. He's done a greater miracles than all of the other prophets. And so Moses embodying the law and Elijah embodying the prophets come and in themselves are speaking, as it were, in their presence about the reality and identity of Christ. Throughout the Gospels, we come into this, um, we come into these moments, either by Jesus or the, by the Gospel writers, where we see that the law and the prophets testify about Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus is beginning his famous Sermon on the Mount, he starts his sermon by saying, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. The law and the prophets speak of me. They testify of me. Or when he's talking to the, to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, he critiques the Pharisees who have made a lifelong, lifelong study of searching the scriptures, the law and the prophets. And he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but they testify of me. The law and the prophets point towards me. Or in Luke 24, when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, and he meets a couple of his disciples who don't know all that has happened, and they're in doubt and confusion. And so Jesus, Luke tells us, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, shows how the scriptures testify of him. And so this idea of the law and the prophets pointing to Christ is why Moses and Elijah have shown up on the mountain. The presence of Moses and Elijah on the mountain with the transfigured Jesus show in real life the way that Jesus stands in continuity with and is the fulfillment of redemptive history. The presence of Moses and Elijah on the mountain of transfiguration is as strong of an endorsement of Jesus' messianic identity as, as any Jewish person could hope for. The only thing that would be more affirming to Jesus' messianic identity would be as if God himself showed up on the mountain. Oh, wait, he does show up on the mountain. So Peter and the other disciples, they're rattled, they're overwhelmed, Luke's gospel tells us that they've just woken up, in fact, and they're seeing Jesus transfigured, they're seeing Moses and Elijah, they're confused, and Peter, not knowing what to say, we read in the other gospels, says, it's good to be here, let's build three booths. Now, what does he mean? No one is quite sure what he means. Even the other gospel writers, Mark and Luke, say Peter didn't even know what he meant. So rather than trying to spend a lot of time thinking about what Peter meant. Apparently, he doesn't know what he meant. Luke and Mark didn't know what he meant. No one knows what he meant. He's so scared that this is what he says. Let's build three booths, three tents. Let's build three like, structures for you, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah to dwell in. While he is still talking, then a bright cloud envelops them. The bright cloud throughout, again, looking back into Israel's history, 
embodies or is associated with the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God, as it's referred to in the Old Testament. You might remember when, when the Israelites come out of Egypt and they're making their way through the wilderness, that they are led by a cloud, and the cloud is the presence of God. The cloud would dwell in the tabernacle or the tent of meeting with Moses, and Moses would go and meet with God in the midst of the cloud. But then when God wanted the people of Israel to move to another location, the cloud would come up out of the tabernacle and would move off, and they were to follow the cloud. The temple, when it was finally dedicated in a permanent place in Jerusalem, there was the cloud of glory that came down from God and filled the temple. Or Ezekiel the prophet saw this glory of God in the heavens, and there he saw a bright shining cloud that enveloped the glory of God. So we have here the God, we have here God's presence in the cloud, but just in case that's not enough to make the point, then we have this voice that speaks out of the cloud. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So Peter is in the midst of saying, let's build three booths, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And before he's finished saying this, there's this voice that interrupts him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And clearly the way that Matthew frames this up, and it's even more so clear in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, that what Peter is saying is inappropriate. He's not saying the right thing given the circumstances of the moment. And so God interrupts Peter. But what is it that Peter is saying wrong? Perhaps he wanted to stay on the mountain, and he thinks if we have tents for Moses and Elijah and Jesus, we can kind of preserve this moment longer. That could be perhaps. But I think the answer is contained in the Lord God's statement that this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, and then this instruction, listen to him. Peter's mistake on the mountain hallelujah, is that he is putting Jesus on par with Moses and Elijah. He is putting Jesus on par with Moses and Elijah. There are seven people on the mountain. There's three disciples, Peter, James, and John. There's two Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets. Then there's Jesus and then there's God. And Peter has lumped Jesus with Moses and Elijah. It's like he's saying, listen, there's three of us who don't need booths. Me and James and John, we're okay. And then there's the three of you. You're all fantastic and great. So we'll get you three booths. And then there's God who, who doesn't need a booth. Now, he doesn't offer to build six booths, so that's a positive on Peter's part. He doesn't put him and James and John kind of on par with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. But he has grouped Jesus with Moses and Elijah rather than associating Jesus with God. And so the voice of God the Father breaks in, and he says to Peter, Peter, this one, this one is my beloved son. 
This is the one in whom I am well pleased. You must listen to him. Moses and Elijah, great as they are, they are not my beloved son. They are not the one in whom I am well pleased. They are not the ones that ultimately you must listen to. When Moses would go into the tabernacle, when the glory of God would come down upon it, he went into the tabernacle, and when he came back out, the glory of God shone on his face. But what's notable in difference about the glory of God shining off of Moses' face and the glory of God emanating from Jesus is that when Moses went into the tabernacle, he wasn't shining When he came out of the glory of God, he was. But in the transfiguration, Jesus is shining in his glory before the cloud appears. Jesus is not, as it were, like Moses, just reflecting the glory of God externally as a moon, as the moon reflects the glory of the sun. But the glory of God in Jesus is emanating from his very person. Jesus' face shines before the cloud appears because Jesus is not a mere reflection like Moses of the divine light. He is the divine light. The light of Jesus' face is as superior to the light of Moses' face as the light of the sun is superior to the light of the moon. Or we could say it even more pointedly and better. The light by which Moses' face shines is Jesus' light. Jesus is the one who is the word from God through whom all things were made. Jesus is the one through whom Moses was made. Jesus is the one who gives the law. Jesus is the one who inspires the prophets. The voice of Jesus, the glory of Jesus has been before Moses and will be after Moses. John tells us in his revelation that Jesus is the beginning and the end. It is his glory that is inherent to himself that separates him from Moses and from Elijah. And Peter has made the mistake of relativizing them all to the same level. This one, Peter, this one is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Forget about Moses and Elijah. They are but shadows in the blazing sun. Pay attention to Jesus, Peter. Peter had not yet reckoned properly with what it meant that Jesus was the Son of God. There's one voice that Peter needed to listen to, and by extension, and applying this now to our own lives, there is One voice that we need to listen to above all others, no matter how worthy and important the other voices, the voice of Jesus, the glorious Son of God. So in my high school years, I I was on the wrestling team, and one of the things that was always uh, interesting about wrestling, uh, there are many things that are interesting about wrestling, I suppose, but one of them is the... the, um, the contestants are all very close to each other, both uh, not only those who are wrestling, but also the teammates. And it, the, the, when it would be a close match, there would be a lot of energy uh, in the room. And one of the things that my coach would say to us was, you can cheer for your teammates, 
but don't give them instructions. Because what what end up happening is there'd be like 15 or 20 of us alongside the mat, and then of course all the well-meaning parents uh, in the stands, all shouting instructions to the wrestler uh, that was on the mat. Sweep the leg, they'd say. Sweep the leg. That's a reference to Karate Kid. We didn't, we didn't sweep the leg in wrestling. So you have to be in your late 30s and a male in order to get that joke. But in any case, uh, our coach would say, don't tell them what to do. You can encourage, but don't give instruction. Because I'm the one that will give instruction, right? And if you all are talking about what he should be doing, then he can't hear me, and I'm the one that knows better than all of you what he should be doing. And I think it's that same way in life. There are lots of voices calling out to us, saying what we should do and what we should be about. And many of these voices are good voices, just like Moses and Elijah on the mount represent good things about Israel's history. Peter was right to honor Moses and Elijah, but he was wrong to honor Moses and Elijah on par with Jesus. Jesus alone, his voice alone should we listen to amongst all the voices that we hear because Jesus alone is the Son of God in whom the Father is well pleased. It is the voice of Jesus that properly sets our course and leads us in the way that God has for us. He alone is the one that we should listen to because he alone is God's son and the one who radiates the very glory of God. So to bring this as close to home as possible, what voices are you tempted to listen to in equal measure to Christ's as you chart your course through life. Not what voices do you let come in that are greater than or supplant Christ's. That's in some ways more obvious. As Christians, we know perhaps when we've moved into that territory. But this is more subtle. In what ways do we allow voices to step into the space that Jesus alone should occupy? Perhaps the voice of your employer. That voice speaks louder to you than the voice of Jesus or speaks equal to the voice of Jesus. The voice, perhaps, of your parents. Perhaps the voice of your peers at school or in the neighborhood, the voice perhaps of your spouse or your children, maybe your own voice, your own inner voices speak to you, the voice of all of your fears and watch out for this and beware of that. Perhaps not the voice of your fears, but maybe the voice of your ambitions. I could be this, I should be that, I I might be this if I try hard. And so it is these inner voices that, that move into the place where Jesus alone should occupy. You can know which voices are the voices that speak loudest in your life because when you try to ignore those voices, they cause you a lot of anxiety. So think for a moment about which voices you try to ignore And when you try to ignore them, they make you anxious. 
perhaps the voice of your mom or your dad. There's goodness in listening to the voice of your mom or your dad, even as adults. But if their voice is the voice that causes you the most anxiety when you don't listen, then you've allowed them to eclipse the place of Jesus. The voice of your employer, the voice of your spouse, the clamors of your children. Whose voices, when you try to ignore, cause anxiety the most? There should be only one voice that, when you try to ignore, causes you anxiety. The voice of Jesus. And too often we cease listening to the voice of Jesus as the primary voice because we have allowed too many other voices to speak into our lives. But Jesus alone is the Son of God. I want to give, as we close out, I want to give five ways to listen to Jesus. We might say, okay, I want Jesus' voice to be the voice that I listen to. I want to prioritize his voice above all the other voices. How do, I, how do I do that? Let me give you just five quick ways for doing that. First, you got to be reading his word. You got to be reading the scriptures. As Jesus has said, we've pointed it out already, but the law and the prophets, all of the scriptures point to Jesus. The Bible is Jesus' book. It is about Jesus. It points to Jesus. It is consummated by Jesus. It is Jesus' spirit that animates the authors that declare Jesus to be the Son of God. So if you want to hear the voice of Jesus, then read the book where Jesus' spirit is speaking through. So read the scriptures that speak of Jesus. So reading God's word, being in church, the body of Christ the metaphor that Jesus, uh, that, the, that the New Testament uses frequently to describe the church is the body of Christ. If you want to hear the mouth of Christ speak, the mouth is attached to the body, both metaphorically in the way that that illustration is being used in the New Testament, but also quite figuratively, and that's why the illustration is being used, or quite literally, and that's why the illustration is being used in the New Testament. That there is a connection between Christ, who is the head, and the church, that is the body. And so if you want the body, if you want the head to speak to you, then be part of the body that is attached to the mouth where Jesus speaks. So read God's word. Be faithful in coming to church. Be faithful in prayer. If you want to hear from someone, just think about your own interpersonal relationships. If you want to hear from someone, you approach them and you begin a conversation with them. If you want them to talk to you, then you, very often, to get them to talk to you, start talking to them. And so if you're not actively giving yourself to prayer in speaking to Jesus, then it will be hard to hear him speaking to you. So we need to set aside time in our lives where we can uh, unburden our mind from the distractions and begin to speak to Jesus about the things that matter to us, speaking to him so that we can enter into relational intimacy where he can speak back to us. So reading God's word, being faithful in church attendance, praying. Here's a fourth, obeying. Jesus says this in John's gospel in the 14th chapter. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, 
He it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Do you want Jesus to manifest himself to you? Then be obedient to the things that he has said. I think sometimes we can go through life where we struggle with obedience. All of us at various points and in many ways struggle with obedience. It's one thing to struggle to be obedient, where we want to be obedient. We are praying for obedience. We're trying to be obedient. I think Jesus has a lot of patience with that. He knows the weakness of our frame. He understands the limits. That's why his blood covers all of our sin. But there's a difference between struggling with obedience to be obedient and completely rolling over and not trying at all. There are no doubt some here this morning, some of us here this morning, who are flagrantly disobeying Jesus. We know what he wants from us, and we're not even trying because we're holding on to something that we value more than what we think the blessings are that he could give to us. And if we want to hear the voice of Jesus, we're going to have to stop doing that. We cannot hear the voice of Jesus. He will not manifest himself to us if we refuse to follow him and his commandments. So read his word, attend church, pray, talk to him, be obedient. And then here I would say maybe perhaps the most important is to have an open ear an open heart that is willing to listen. There's a beautiful little story in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 3. Samuel was one of the the great prophets of the Old Testament. He was the last of the judges uh, before the the days of the kings began, and he spanned both uh, periods in Israel's history. He was the one that uh, anointed King David uh, as the great forerunner of Jesus. And so Samuel's ministry as a prophet, though, began when he was just a young boy. He was living uh, with Eli, who was the, his predecessor at the time. And as Samuel, just a young boy, probably under 10 years old, was lying in bed at night, he heard the voice of the Lord calling his name, Samuel, Samuel. But he didn't know that it was the Lord. He thought it was Eli. So he got up and he went over to Eli and he said, yes, Eli, what do you want? And Eli said, I haven't called you. Go back and lay down on your bed. Samuel went back, he laid down, the voice came again, Samuel, Samuel, and he, he got up and he went back to Eli and he said, yes, Eli, master, what do you want? And Eli said, I haven't called you, go back and lay down. This happened a third time, and the third time Eli figured out that it was the Lord that was calling to Samuel, even though he was so young. So Eli said, go back and lay down on your bed, and when the voice calls, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So Samuel went back and he lay down on his bed and the voice called out to him and Samuel said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And from that young age, the youngest of all the prophets in the Old Testament, the voice of the Lord began to come to Samuel. And he grew to be a prophet mighty in word and in deed because he was willing to listen to the voice of the Lord. Sometimes I think we don't hear the voice of Jesus Because at the end of the day, we're not sure we really want to. Because he might say some inconvenient things. But when we can get to that place, that childlike place where Samuel was, perhaps naive for Samuel, perhaps naive for us, but trusting and to say, speak, Lord, 
Your servant is listening. Just say to us what you want said. We're listening. We'll do what you want done. Matthew closes out this episode on the mountain, verse 8, I think, very poignantly making the point of how he has told the story. The voice rebukes Peter, tells Peter to listen to Jesus above all others. The disciples fall on their faces. They're terrified. Jesus comes over, touches them, tells them to arise, to put away their fear. And then Matthew says this, and when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And that's the point, I think, that God's Father wanted us to have, that Jesus' Father wanted us to have about Jesus. That at the end of all of that moment on the mountain, there is Jesus only. When the drama of the episode, the lights fade Moses and Elijah exit the stage. The cloud goes away. Jesus is his back to his normal appearance. There's just Jesus only. And he is the one that we are to listen to. So all of life, many competing voices coming from within, coming from without, saying what we should be, saying what we should do. We can get exhausted trying to listen to all of them. But God asks us to listen to only one voice the voice of his son in whom he is well pleased. And when we listen to the voice of Jesus, Jesus leads us in to the path of blessing. Amen? Father, thank you that you have given us Jesus. So many voices, Lord, that compete in this life to, for our allegiance to try to tell us what we should be about, what we should be doing, where we should be going, what we should be prioritizing. And they all don't gel with each other and we're tossed back and forth sometimes like a, like a ping pong ball and we, we exhaust ourselves trying to please everybody or, or we silence all the voices and we harden our hearts and we say we're only going to please ourselves, but there's no joy in that either. And so, Lord, we, we don't want to listen to our own voice. We don't want to listen to the voices of the world, even the good voices of the world. We want to prioritize and listen to the voice of Jesus. God, help us to have faith to believe that his way is the right way, that you have sent him to be a blessing to us. May we say like Samuel, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Guide us and lead us. Make us faithful, Lord, in availing ourselves of the way that Jesus speaks through his word, through his people, through obedience, through prayer, through an open heart. God, we pray that you would guide us and lead us by the voice of our good shepherd. In his name we pray, amen.